Dan. Yo. Guess what? Mm, what? This is like a, a five-year-old knock-knock joke. Today <laughs> is the last day we are accepting applications to come work with us. That's right. We are hiring for the first time in a long time, so we wanted to mention it at the top of the show. This position is a special one. It's for somebody looking to change the trajectory of their career to learn about entrepreneurship by working directly with us and directly in our business. Do go check it out at tropicalmba.com. That's it. Come work with us. We're going to have a lot of fun. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, yo, welcome to the Tropical MBA Podcast. Good day, boss man. Good day. Today we are talking about the challenges of building a culture as your business grows. Okay, that's a corporate way to say it. And let me translate that into the entrepreneurial slang. This is the stuff that you need to know about if you're going to have a meaningful, significant business. It comes under the heading of a lot of elusive terms like culture and whatever. We've been talking about it recently with Nathan Barry on this podcast. We've been talking about it with Noah Kagan, who actually admitted that he ran away from the challenges, albeit briefly, that we're going to talk about in today's episode. You've said it a million times, boss man. If you're going to have a meaningful business, you're going to have to manage a team. That's it. That's it. There's no two ways about it. And that's what we're going to get into today. We're going to talk with someone who's really freaking good at it. What do you think? Are we doing okay? Yeah, we're doing great. <laughs> Today's guest is Carrie McKeegan, someone we've personally known for a long time. She's spoken at our events. We've met her in person many times. She is the co-founder of Greenback Expat Tax Services. So Carrie's business prepares tax returns for Americans who live overseas. Her co-founder is her husband, Dave who actually we met him because he was an early listener to this show. Do you remember when Dave used to send us questions? I do. He still rags on us about how instead of answering his question, we critiqued his website. <laughs> it was a bad website until very recently, actually, Dave. So It's a wonderful website now. You, thanks to our <laughs> brave critique. But we focus on the problems we see, not the ones we hear. Right? <laughs> there was a bigger problem that we saw that needed addressing. Since that time, their business has exploded, and they've had to face a lot of challenges along the way. So in this interview, Carrie and I really had a broad-ranging conversation, not only about the challenges of building that elusive culture, but the positives and the negatives of working with your partner, which is something that a lot of entrepreneurs I'm seeing are doing in our community. Lots of really good insights into this show. And Ian, here's some teasers of some things we're going to talk about in this conversation. One of the things that Carrie mentions a lot is how critical her corporate experience or her on-the-job experience was to giving them a huge leg up in their business. That's something that I think is important, is that the best way to get entrepreneurial skills is to work in real businesses. And Carrie believes that as well. So she's going to talk a little bit about that. She's going to talk about some essential insights into running a remote team. We also talk a little bit about validation for entrepreneurs. So stick around for that. Are you ready for this one, boss man? I'm ready. You're ready? So we're going to do a little bit of background. Greenback Tax Services was founded in 2008 and has grown to a 55-person fully distributed team made up of around 35 CPAs, or that's accountants, Many of them, by the way, are former employees of top U.S. accountancy firms. So we're going to talk a little bit about how they recruit them onto their team. And they also have about 20 people doing more administrative or business-oriented tasks like sales and customer service. So if you want to grow a meaningful business that's going to not just pay the rent, but pay for the retirement, this is an episode you're going to want to stick around for. So I started this conversation by asking Carrie, why she and her husband, Dave, decided to go into business together in the first place. If you love somebody, tell them why they 
So one, our skill sets, you know, matched up really, really nicely. So Dave is absolutely more on the kind of finance and sales side of the business. That's his forte. I'm more marketing operations. We went to business school together. And when we took classes, we found actually he was good at some things. I was good at other things. We worked well together and it all worked really nicely. So we sort of had a little bit of a test ground knowing that we could work together. And we also, because we're both pretty passionate about about work and about running a business, it kind of permeates your personal life. So it's really nice if the person that you're spending all your time with is as excited about what you're doing as you are, right? So I think that balance is really, really good. What we found, though, is that in kind of the early stages of the business, it was wonderful. So, you know, it was just us collaborating, working together. You know, you'd have times when work was really kind of overpowering. Building that business was something that was literally everything you did. But once we started to find that the team got bigger and bigger, having two people with the exact same role was really confusing. So even though the strategy was really clear, we never really had, you know, any disagreements in terms of what it was we were trying to do with the business. Different people will always have slightly different approaches and slightly different prioritization. It's, it's nuances. It's tiny little things. So what we've done at this point is actually separated out. So I'm running the business day to day and Dave and I still work on all of the strategy together and he's still the CFO. So he really looks at you know doing all the forecasting and modeling and, and some of those things. But we found that at certain points, it was a really, really nice fit. And at other points, especially as a business grows, it becomes very difficult for the team and becomes very duplicative. Because the team says, well, Carrie said this, but then Dave said it a different way. And now I don't know who's the boss, really. Is that the idea? A little bit. I mean, it was never that, you know, dramatic, but it was more that you found that anytime a decision needed to get made, people would come to both of us. And you'd be like, well, you don't need both of us. We'd probably, you know, we might make slightly different decisions, but it wouldn't matter. But ultimately, it just felt like we were duplicating a lot. And because we have a family as well, we wanted to make sure that we were really making, I mean, as anyone would, it's not just related to having a family, but making really, really good use of our time. So wanted to really nip that in that bud, the whole sort of too many cooks problem. You essentially like quit your jobs the same year you had your first kid. Is that about right? Yeah. So it can be done. Some people would say a little crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And now you have three. Yeah. No, we've got three little boys. So a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old. Part of the reason I'm asking about this is when one of the partners starts a business, there's always that opportunity to go to the other partner and say, hey, why don't we do this together? Do you have any sort of general advice for people that are thinking about working with their partners or starting a business with them or incorporating their partner into their existent business? It worked really well for Dave and I, but I see a lot of people do it where it doesn't work so well. So I think just because you are compatible, you know, from a romantic perspective doesn't necessarily mean you're compatible from a business perspective. And I think there's always the risk that you can actually take something that's really wonderful and turn it bad by trying to work together. And I've seen that more often than not more kind of anecdotally. I think you should really, you know, focus on whether you have compatible skills, you know, so if if both people are good at the same things, it's not really the best fit because you'll both want to be working on the same things. I think there needs to be that sort of differentiation of who does what from the very beginning. So it was natural for us, but I think it was also natural for us because we knew from working together in a business school context who sort of naturally gravitated towards what. I also think that as you're starting a family, a lot of you know, for those people that are interested in in doing that, it becomes a little complicated, right? So, you know, I've heard stories of people who have actually purposefully chosen different maybe businesses or different careers to make sure that they aren't always busy at the same time. So one of the things that Dave and I ran into was, you know, when we had little, little kids, which I guess we still have little, little kids, but there'd be times when all of a sudden everyone's homesick. And if you're both working (laughs) on the same thing, you're like, Who's going to cover that? Like, what are we going to do now? Whereas, you know, if you have different priorities and you're working on different things, it's much easier to keep that kind of personal and and business balance going. What are some of those anecdotal reasons that people are screwing up that maybe they could avoid? I think it's easy to bring business into your personal life. So you're sitting over dinner, right? So this is something that Dave and I run into or used to run into more. You know, you go out to dinner, you get a babysitter, you go out to dinner, you're like, okay, this is awesome, we're going to dinner. And, you know, 15 minutes into dinner, you check your phone and an email comes in and you're talking about work and you spend like three hours talking about business, which 
is kind of fun sometimes. Like we all like what we do. So sometimes it's actually really, really fun. But it kind of takes away time that you should have been spending with your spouse or your partner. And that's assuming things are going well, right? So if the business is struggling, if there's disagreements in terms of how you're handling things, I think that can can really kind of permeate personal life too. It also seems kind of cool that you guys have built like sort of a family empire together, like a, a true family business, but in this sort of new on the internet sort of way. There's something to be proud of that you've done it together. Yeah, no, and we we love that. I mean, it's been really, really fun. And it does like, you know, Dave jokes all the time that it's sort of like we've got four kids. So we've got three little boys <laughs> and and a business. And it's like this whole, you know, it all kind of goes together. We manage it all all similarly. How has building this business affected the lives of your kids? I think, well, for one, they constantly are hearing about business, <laughs> which has its pros and cons. Our seven-year-old, Timmy, he honestly thinks of things in a really, you know, entrepreneurial way from a, a very young age, I think, you know, and of course I'm biased because I'm the mom. And so I'm going <laughs> to think he's wonderful. But, you know, you see things like when he talks about wanting to be able to buy something, he says things like, I need to start a business, not I need to get a job. He literally uses different wording. And he thinks about things that you can invent and things you can create and, and ways that you can kind of sell things as opposed to maybe what would be a more traditional, you know, can I have an allowance, <laughs> you know, kind of conversation. It's more like, I could go and sell this. And I see people selling these shells all over the place. We could buy them and we can sell them in New York. And he's even talked about selling things on Amazon or having his own YouTube channel where he shows people how to make stuff out of duct tape. You know, like there's those things kind of flying around in his head. I think a lot of parents that are getting into this sort of business, they have questions about how location might affect their child's lives. And you've had a lot of front row experience to that. So I wanted to ask you about it. How do you think being in different locations and living abroad and sorts of things, what sort of effect does that have on your kids? I think it makes them really see the world much more broadly. So you'll never hear our kids talk about other people being weird or different. It's just sort of they expect people to be different. They expect to have people having different, you know, languages, speaking in different languages near them, to have different beliefs, to like different sporting teams, to have different religions. Like there's just no, it's almost like they have no normal. They really feel like anything, you know, makes sense and they're curious and they have questions. It doesn't sort of shut them down. I noticed that quite a lot. And I think that that's really a really healthy thing for them to really understand their place in the world and to be able to see that it's just so broad and varied and really accepting of other people. And I think that, you know, it's really, really wonderful to be able to have, you know, a good relationship with cousins and with grandparents and with aunts and uncles. And I think they miss out a little bit on that. So I worry about that, that kind of closeness, which is why we spend summers in the U.S. and make sure that they have some of that grounding but I don't think that it's for them an issue, the fact that they're constantly going to new places. I think they embrace that and that's just how they were raised. I think it's a very different situation if you take kids who are you know, seven years old and then try to introduce them to this way of living versus have them always grow up with that. This week's podcast is sponsored by ConvertKit. They make sophisticated email marketing simple. You can see how ConvertKit can help your business grow by trying out their software for free for 30 days. That offer is for TMBA listeners and it's at convertkit.com slash TMBA. Stop sending the same email blasts to everyone on your list. ConvertKit makes it simple to set up intelligent automations that convert prospects into clients and customers into repeat buyers. It only takes three minutes to set up a sophisticated automation sequence. Again, don't send the same email to everyone on your list. And because you're a TMBA listener, you can check it out for free. Check out that offer. It's at convertkit.com slash TMBA for 30 days. See how ConvertKit can help simplify and grow your business. And a big thanks to ConvertKit for sponsoring the show. You've mentioned to me on a few occasions in the past how important your corporate experience has been to you being a successful entrepreneur. And that sometimes on this show, we can get a little bit overzealous and full of ourselves and say, ah, oh, corporate jobs are this and that. And let's talk about that a little bit. And what sort of corporate experience did you have before you came into starting Greenback? 
So I started my career doing marketing for American Express. Then I went to business school. Then I went back to doing marketing for American Express and moved into managing partnerships. And then I moved over and worked at Barclays as a general manager. And I think that that last piece of experience is the one that really set me up to be able to run a business. What I find is that often for me, you know, some of the things that I'm reading kind of day to day, so I'm reading Inc. and Entrepreneur, and it's all talking about, you know, these kind of new techniques of ways of running a business. And some of it is about the sort of those tried and true methods that big companies use and being able to draw pieces that work. So it's almost like if you were to compare internet marketing with kind of more traditional brand marketing. And it's a little bit of a stretch in terms of, a, of an analogy, but essentially I find that there's this kind of desire to do all these new, new things and in marketing, right? So everyone's like, oh, you can be looking at Snapchat. Yeah, Snapchat <laughs> or, you know, Facebook ads or whatever. And there's sometimes that sort of general foundation missing of you need to have an awesome brand and a message and a product that works and all of those really, really fundamental things. And I think it can be the same when people start a business that haven't had that kind of traditional managing a business type experience. So for example, for a little while, I got totally caught up in the meetings are terrible thing, right? Like we should never have meetings. We've canceled all meetings. I'm reading all of these things about how meetings are awful. And then it struck me, well, some meetings are awful, but at Barclays, what I did is I had these kind of monthly meetings that really were structured, that were really disciplined. People knew exactly what they were you know, bringing to the table, and they really helped to bring the team together. So essentially, I think that there's a lot that you can draw on from you know, sort of the more traditional corporate management techniques, as long as you don't take everything with you. So there's a lot that doesn't work too. So you have to be, be choosy and really pay attention. But I think having that foundation helps you know what, what works and what doesn't. When you were working, I mean, you had a great job. You know, everybody's going to give you kudos for that sort of employment. Were you an entrepreneur, like, you know, dressed up as a, a corporate employee? Or were you always an entrepreneur and just waiting for your opportunity? I don't know. I always gravitated towards fix-it type situations in, in my corporate life. So I was the person who really was okay with the idea of kind of getting into something that wasn't working and totally reinventing it. I wasn't afraid to take chances. So I would cancel things or I would close out kind of pieces of businesses that, that didn't work or, you know, I didn't want to just have a, a script that I followed. I wasn't somebody who didn't like working for somebody else. So I, I've heard of a lot of entrepreneurs that were like, I absolutely hated kind of working for the man and really didn't enjoy that. I had no problem with that. I just, I kind of felt like I, I knew I would end up doing something on my own and that would come in time. Yeah. What was the key motivation for you to take such a risk and start a small business and a small family at the same time? A couple of things. One thing is that I really didn't want to have to choose between, you know, an awesome career and building something and having a family. And even as you're, when you're running your own business, there's obviously that constant push and pull, but I wanted to be on my own terms. I wanted to make those decisions and not have it be based on what someone else thought was important. So I'll never forget going into work one day, a couple years out of college, and there was this lady I worked with that I had tremendous respect for. I just thought she was wonderful. And I, if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said, this is who I want to be in five years time. And she had two little kids and she said, you know, oh, I had such a great phone call just now. My son just walked for the first time. The nanny was so proud. And that's literally what she said. The nanny was so proud. And I thought, I don't want that to be me. I want to be, you know, when I decide that I want to be a mom, I want to be a mom. I want to be able to be there for those moments. That was always really top of mind for me. But the idea that you could duplicate that success on your own, to me, seems... In some ways, it, it was probably harder for you than for a lot of entrepreneurs because you had such a good job. Or do you think that that stark contrast being so clear in front of you made it made it a little bit easier? No, I mean, if you looked at sort of Dave and my lives in London in you know, 2008, you know, it was a crazy, crazy thing to walk away from. So it was crazy to have these, particularly for me, because what, what Dave was going through at that time was you know, the total crash of the financial market, and that really impacted his role. So he went from having this amazing, you know, exciting, heavy sales, you know, role where he was selling debt at amazing numbers to like there being no market there. So he was bored. I didn't exactly have that, but I started really having the itch of wanting to create something on my own. And I started to just feel like it was time to make the move away also from a place like London. So 
I loved living in London. I thought it was great for when I was doing it, but I always had sort of the the itch to travel all over the world and to see new places. And, you know, I was the person who in my 35 days of vacation in London took 35 and bought the extra five, you know, to make sure I could go to everywhere there was I wanted to go. So I, that was a big piece of it is not wanting to be geographically constrained. When most people go to start their own business, they often think about their skill sets and what they're good at. And they start a business, particularly if it's a service business, which yours is, they'll start a service around a skill set that they feel like they, they can charge a lot of money for, essentially. But what you did was very different, which is you started a business where you were doing accounting for people. But as far as I understand, you're not a CPA. You've never done accounting for people. So walk me through that process. Was that Did you see that as a problem or as an opportunity at the beginning? I saw it as an opportunity. So when Dave and I decided we wanted to start our own business, we literally sat down and tried to write out 100 business ideas. And there were a million really bad ideas, you know. Like what's one that maybe a listener could take up and... One of them was that we thought that the idea of like selling snow cones in Brazil was an unexplored area, you know. So Dave had this idea and we were literally looking into it, like going and renting all of these, you know, trucks that were going to go onto, you know, the beaches in, in Ipanema and sell snow cones. In another universe, you're like the the snow cone mogul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so we sat down and we wrote out all these business ideas and something just wasn't clicking. And then we sort of looked at it from this other way, which is what is something that we ourselves would need? And at the time we were trying to do our taxes and we were just having the most horrendous time with it. We couldn't find anyone who knew what they were doing. And we were complaining to friends. You know, I was like somebody's house at a barbecue sort of, you know, this doesn't seem to work. And there's tons of Americans that are living in London. So a lot of people that had the same thing. And didn't think of that as being a moment at all. And then when we went back and we're kind of looking at our list of ideas, it was like, well, why wouldn't we tackle that one? Let me warp on in here due to the power of technology, just to point out something about solving problems and scratching your own itch. Because I think so many entrepreneurs put so much pressure on themselves to have that really brilliant, sharp idea. And I think there's a reason why so many great businesses sell to other businesses. They scratch their own itch about something that businesses are trying to do, which is make more money, have more efficient processes. And that can start even in the pre-business phase when you're just talking about your personal finances. Like, hey, if it's a pain in the butt to file your taxes, then maybe you could start a business that makes it just that much easier for people to file their taxes. And then all of a sudden, people can purchase your product because it doesn't have to be some cool thing. They can see the problem, they can feel it, and they can also get a return on their investment right away. And it seems like the kind of thing that you'd think, oh, I need to be a CPA to be able to do that. But I saw it really differently. One is I saw that I really understood financial services and financial services marketing. And so this felt very neatly aligned to that. And two, I actually think, and I still think this, that it's a bit of a broken industry, right? So accounting firms, you've got all of these individual firms all over the place, it's kind of one man shops. You know, people have this idea that they go in and they've got all these receipts in a shoebox and they hand it over to this person that is their uncle's best friend's cousin that they've known forever, you know, kind of thing. And we just kind of felt like there's a totally different, better way of doing this. Being an accountant might have actually, and being used to that sort of really traditional way of doing things, might have actually been a real disadvantage because you can't really disrupt that industry if you're can't question it. And if you just kind of see some of those assumptions as being the way things work. So I actually think it really worked to our advantage. Have you read the book, The E-Myth? Yeah. I remember that example where they say like the really good baker, their first idea is to start a bakery. But the moment the bakery opens up, the craft that they're involved in is actually like owning a business. It's not baking. That always resonated with me. And it seems a little bit of the principle that you're talking about here, which is that you guys aren't filing tax returns yourselves. What you're doing is you're growing a business. And that's sort of a different skill set. And not having the CPA skill set allows you to focus on the more important thing that's happening. Yeah. And that's exactly, I mean, we've, you know, even kind of within the business, there's been a couple of times that we've really tried to bring in people with an accounting background to run things like, you know, operations, to, to be setting up our CRM system, doing all that. And it's it's always not worked because, 
What you need is somebody who really understands operations. And it doesn't matter what industry they understand operations in, as long as they have the same values that you have as a business. And as long as you all can, they have all of those qualities that you want within your team. Understanding accounting can be learned in terms of what customers need. Whereas understanding how to run the business and how to build the business is a completely different skill set. Have you ever been tempted to open an office? Yes. Not really tempted, meaning we've never really, but it comes up probably once a year as in, gosh, wouldn't it be so much easier to hire people if you had an office or explain the business if you had an office? Less and less so these days, but a couple years ago, you know, I felt like at some point to legitimize the business, maybe we would just need to have an office that no one sat in so that you had an address that you could kind of claim as your own and look on paper a little more traditional. Why didn't you get one then? I actually don't know that I ever really thought that would fix more things than it broke. So it was always an idea that kind of came up and it seemed really appealing because it's easy, right? You say, okay, I'm just going to do things the way that everyone else, you know, has done them before. But in this case, you know, one, the people that we're hiring, it's a pretty niche skill set. So you're not going to find them all concentrated in one area. The ability to hire people from all over the world really, really benefits us as a business, particularly. The other thing is, I think that when you're hiring people and you're managing a team, in a distributed way, you need to bring in people who are more self-starters. You need to bring in people who are, are harder to find, you know, because they're, they're people who can operate much more independently. But once you do that, I think that's much more valuable than people who need an office and need that structure to be able to succeed. I like managing people who, who don't need that oversight. You have a lot of philosophies around how to run a team and you've run many experiments. I want to talk about some of those, but... When does all this stuff start to matter? Like, do you remember in your business when you were like, oh my gosh, like we need to have some kind of culture here or something? Is there an employee count or a size of the business that all of a sudden this stuff hits home? When you get to the point where you're not talking to everybody at least once or twice a week, it becomes important. So you have to figure out how you're going to transmit your message and how get everyone on the same page in a way that is lasting while the business grows. And at the beginning, if you're talking to everyone all the time, you don't need to do that, really, <laughs> you know, because you're sort of immediately transmitting that one-to-one. But once it get, I mean, I don't know, more than five people, let's say, maybe more than 10 people, I think that that's when it becomes important. What happens in most companies, it seems, is that people never really take the question of culture seriously, and they talk to their direct reports, and then their direct reports sort of do what they want with the rest of the staff, and the business ambles along. Like, what was it? with you guys that you decided, hey, we're going to do this differently. We're going to have some intentionality behind what we're building. I'm trying to think of how many years into the business we were, but we were, it was 2011. So we were about three years into the business. And it felt like everyone was working unbelievably hard and no one was getting anything done. I just remember that feeling of like, what is everyone doing? <laughs> you know, like everyone's really busy. We're not achieving anything. We're not really growing. You know, it, the, the business growth was good, I guess, technically on paper. We were bringing in customers and we were doing all that. But some of that, like setting up the business for scale and creating kind of awesome marketing messages, like that kind of stuff just wasn't happening. And we also found that we were starting to feel like we were really tied to individual contributors within the team. So you'd hire somebody, they'd learn how to do something. And then if you outgrew that person or if it just wasn't working out for some reason, you're like, oh, but they're the only one that knows how to do that. <laughs> like, we have to keep them come hell or high water because they're the only people that know how to do that. And so we really kind of embarked upon the whole journey of creating a lot of structure around things, you know, the, the whole kind of world of SOPs and creating all of that. And that was huge for us. There was a school of thought that said, if you've got SOPs, you can hire anybody to run those SOPs. And... I was always a little skeptical of that. So you figure, well, you've got an SOP, but then you need somebody who can sort of make decisions around that. And we kind of played around with that a little bit and, and tested that and brought in people who could just do the SOPs and execute against them really well. And then brought in people who maybe were a little bit more able to operate outside of that and, and really liked that shift of sort of having SOPs as the groundwork and really a lot of structure and process as the groundwork but with people that were able to understand when it made sense to use an SOP, understand when you needed one, manage those you know, processes, but also be able to help you grow the business. But once you bring in people that are helping you grow the business, it's a really dangerous thing because they can grow it in a way that's not of your own vision, of your own likeness. And so it immediately creates that need to 
have to make sure that everyone is kind of rowing in the same direction. Some people might say, well, isn't it good to have people that can come in and and maybe you don't know the best way to grow the business. Maybe this person is smarter in a way that you don't see and they actually stumble onto something that would make a big difference for the business. I definitely wouldn't know all of the things on how to grow the business. So I, I'm not you know, advocating at all that you're sort of handing somebody a script. But the vision, everyone needs to align to the same vision. So when I talk about things like vision, we actually have just been doing some work on that internally and trying to really kind of cull it down to things that are more bite-sized because we used to have this vision document that was, it's been like this for a while, but we, you know, it's 20 things long. So you've got 20 things that people are supposed to keep in mind all the time. So we're trying to turn it into something that's like five or six. And one example to give you a sense of what I mean is sort of this concept that feedback is a gift. Feedback is something that we want to give to each other to, to help each other grow. It's something that we really want to elicit from customers, from you know the accountant team, and really kind of take that on wholeheartedly. So the idea of sort of embracing people essentially telling you that what you're doing has some improvement opportunities in lots of different ways. And that's kind of an ethos and a way of running the business. I want to bring in people that follow that same value and really kind of want to live by those values. Because if you were to bring in people that don't understand that and don't appreciate that, and then you have some people that do and some people that don't, I think the dynamics that would create team-wise would be actually really confusing. So when we talk about culture, it's not necessarily like a roadmap. It's like a way of making decisions and a way of operating that I think is what you need to transmit. So in terms of the culture and that vision, is that just a document with 20 operating principles? What does it look like in practice? Lots of different things. So, and this is one of the things that we've really learned. Everyone absorbs information in a different way. And I come from a marketing background. So to me, it's almost like a pitch, right? Like, so you're pitching internally to, to people in the same way that you would to customers or to investors. So it, it can't be flat. It can't just be a document. So a couple different things, you know, one is constant reinforcement, you know, so you're hiring based on that, you're commenting based on that, you're giving people high fives based on those values Another thing is, you know, just kind of little things like we did this and we did this a couple of years ago and we're in the process of refreshing it. We basically wrote this kind of pretend magazine article. So we pretended we were being interviewed by Fast Company and we said, this is us five years from now. So it was meant to be like, if I were being interviewed in five years, like, what would you say? You know, and it had pictures and it had graphics and it had quotes. And it was literally like a way of absorbing how the business would feel and look at that time. And it wasn't all fluff. It was talking about things that were hard or things that we thought we might screw up. And, but it, it gave you that feeling of who we were. So I think, you know, to answer your question, if it turns into just a document, I think that is a really bad outcome because it means you did all the work and people didn't get it. So it's about kind of integrating it into everything that you do. What are some of the things that you wish you would have done a little earlier or differently? You know, I failed to appreciate how important it was to constantly be reinforcing some of those messages. So we did a lot of work where we got everybody on the same page and then a couple of people left, a couple of people joined and a year later we were like, oh, and so then there's this thing that we're working towards and people are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, and it was like, you did all the work and created none of that follow through. I didn't really appreciate that up front. I thought, this is my team. They're going to be here forever. You know, these are the people, they're going to remember everything I say forever and, <laughs> you know, put it all out there. And then six months later, it was like, it kind of had faded. So it was about the reinforcement. You have people all around the world, 50 employees. You guys live on a tropical island. What's this structure of the communication look like in terms of the meetings you're going to, who's slacking who, when? How does it work in your company? It's actually really complicated, to be honest. So a couple of things. One is that every week we do a weekly state of the business report, which is all the numbers. And there's commentary that goes alongside that. So you basically know here's where we're doing well, here's where we're not doing so well. And that's basically a chance for the management team to look and know where to focus their time and attention that following week. Every Friday, every single member of the team, of the management team, sends their respective manager what we call a weekly 30-10 report, which is sort of stolen from the concept of the 15-5 report, which is what it was meant to be was 15 minutes to write and five minutes to read. And we've sort of Returned it into 30 minutes to write and 10 minutes to read because we found that it was too shallow if you just had, you know, 15 minutes. But it includes things like, you know, what the biggest priorities were for 
this last week, what was accomplished relative to that, where people are stumbling, how they're feeling, and generally just really kind of gives me a chance to, to understand how people are feeling without that daily, weekly touch point. One thing that people always think is that if you hire a team remotely, that you're going to be sitting around worrying about them not working. And I actually think what people need to be worrying about is them burning out. So it's not about worrying that people aren't working enough. It's worrying about that they're working too much. You know, so they're working from home. And what I find the biggest problem we have with people is that they totally burn out. You know, they don't take time off. They're like, oh, I'm at home. I don't need to take time off. Or I can work from my vacation in Mexico. I don't need to do that. And that people just don't have that ability to shut off in that context the way they can in an office. So, you know, I just think that's important for people to keep in mind. If you're hiring a team, don't spend all your time thinking, you know, what time tracking should I use and should I you know, make sure that they're actually there? You have to hire the right people. And obviously that, you know, is important, but that'll take care of itself. But really pay attention to whether people are giving themselves enough breaks the way you would to kind of take care of your own health and, you know, your own ability to refresh, make sure you're, you're kind of giving your team that option too and making that feel welcome too. What are the signs or do you find that out about that on the reports? I find out about that on the reports a little bit and that's kind of the idea, but often people don't know when they're in those situations. You know, they don't know to say to you, you know, gosh, I just feel like I, I can't think straight. But I think I mean, it's, some of it's kind of really easy where it's like, take some time off here and there, you know, the same way that, that you and I kind of appreciate the ability to occasionally not be on our email 24 hours a day. Like it's that completely, you know, take two weeks off and go to Sri Lanka if that's what you need to do. And, you know, take that time. Don't feel it because you're working from home. You don't need to. I think that's a very difficult conversation for many entrepreneurs to have. You have all these expectations for your team and for your business. And then you're on the phone with one team member and you have a suspicion that, you know, they're working too hard, but maybe they just want to work hard and why not just let them? I mean, I've done a lot where I can see somebody is just working too hard. And when they start like kind of making bad decisions, right? So when things start to be quick, they're not as thoughtful, like the same thing that I see in myself, where if I'm working too many hours, I sort of stop thinking clearly. So I'm like, okay, I'm production, production, production mode. And you're kind of trying to get a lot done. And all of a sudden you realize like, you know, I didn't need to do a hundred things. I needed to do like, to really think through this one thing. And you can see that in people when they're doing that. And so I'll do things like I'll say, you just go take the day off tomorrow. Like that's, it's not a question. It's a, just go do it. We've got this system we use called Podio. And so it's kind of like Slack in the sense that all the chats are happening within the context of Podio. And I heavily encourage people not to have that delivered to their email. So they're not sort of seeing stuff that's coming in all the time. If something comes in on your phone and someone's chosen to make a decision to outside of our kind of usual communication stream alert you, you know that's an emergency. And then you respond to that as an emergency. So you, you have people who can manage you know, things that come up that are unexpected. But all that other minutia that comes in that doesn't need to be dealt with on a holiday or doesn't need to be dealt with on a weekend stays within the project management system. So if you say to somebody, hey, take a day off, don't log in they can do that and know that, you know, we'll get in touch if something comes up. So they have that peace of mind. I have some Carrie McKeegan quotes here. One is don't hire entrepreneurs. Why is that? I want to sort of just explain what I mean by that. So by don't hiring entrepreneurs, I mean, don't hire people with who, what they want to do and their real passion is creating their own business. So what you want to hire is what I would describe as more entrepreneurs. So people who have that ability to really shape things, to grow things, to kind of push the envelope but are happy to do so in the context of a business that they themselves didn't start. What I've found is that when we've hired entrepreneurs in the past, their mind is on what they want to start in the business. And you want all that passion and that purpose and that energy to be helping you grow your business as opposed to, you know, to be what they do during the day. And then in the evening, they're thinking about what their, their passion is. Some people assume that those people don't exist or they're hard to find. How do you tell the difference and how do you find them? I mean, I find hiring immensely difficult. So I think that's actually really the absolute hardest thing in business. So I would say that with a few false starts, you know, but what I check for a lot when we're interviewing people is resilience. So that ability to screw things up and just start over and keep going, because I find that people who are resilient are also not afraid of failing and of taking risks. And if you're not afraid of taking risks, then you're going to kind of help me to grow things and help me to reinvent things. Equally, on the other side of that, you don't want somebody who is so risk-seeking that they basically unwind things that are already working. 
some of the questions that I ask in interviews is trying to seek out if whether somebody has kind of that, I want to be a hero mindset. So they want to come in and they want to, you know, really have this one moment where they shine. And so they're looking for that at the expense of doing some of the mundane things that worked that won't give them that immediate sense of gratification, but over time are the right moves. What are some of the mistakes you've made in the past few years that have there been moments where you're like, ah, I know exactly what I did wrong there with that hire? Yeah. You know, and it almost always falls down to not trusting your gut. We'd made mistakes in hiring and we'd found people and we were like, oh, this isn't the right person. And how do we get this wrong and all of that? And so I tried really hard to like productionalize it. So it was like, okay, I'm going to go through the following steps and I'm going to ask these questions and it's going to be like almost like a tick box system. You know, if they follow these criteria or they have these criteria, that makes them good for the job. I think I sort of took out the, the instinct part of it. You know, sometimes you meet somebody and you just know they're right for something and you can't exactly explain it. And sometimes you meet people and on paper, they look perfect, but there's something that's telling you that it's wrong. And you just have to listen to that and kind of give that more weight. I know that sounds so fluffy and hard to follow. And when I got that advice originally, I was like, oh, that's impossible for me to implement. But <laughs> it absolutely has been true in my case. When I look back on people where I've made mistakes on hiring, there has been some little thing in me that has sort of felt like it wasn't right. And if I had just listened to that and really dug into that, it would have been much better. You guys recently had a company retreat. Can you tell me a little bit about what motivated that? We've been trying to do them actually every summer with the management team. We did them. So last year we did San Diego, which was really fun. And then this year we did Nashville, which was really, really fun. You know, what motivated it? You know, we just, I find that it's really fun just to get together with people, to get to know each other a bit we have agendas and we spend a bunch of time in meetings, but the real purpose of those sessions is to have dinner and to have lunch and to sort of sit and chat over a coffee and get to know what each other likes and, you know, build some of those relationships. One of the biggest themes in building a remote team, distributed team, is the issue of time zones and time zone overlap. How does that work in, in your business and how do you think about it? It's definitely an issue for us. With the accountants, it's not so much of an issue. So we don't meet so frequently as a larger team with all of the accountants together that we really worry about that too much. So it's okay to have some people that are in Australia and some people are in Mexico, and they may just never really you know, have a time to be on the phone together. And that's kind of okay. Within the context of the management team, which is probably more relevant to you know, most people where they're needing to collaborate all the time, I think it it is an issue. So I think you do need to have, you know, a reasonable overlap during the day to be able to to make that work. Is it just Europe and North America? I try to hire people in, and this is just selfishly, because since we're in Bali, I try to hire people in Pacific time zone as much as possible or as close to that. Because essentially what it means is my morning is sort of towards the end of their workday. We have exceptions. You know, we've got somebody who's in Greece and she literally doesn't match up. She matches up a little bit to my day in Bali, and she matches up a little bit to, you know, people that are in the U.S., but actually getting a meeting with everybody is really, really complicated. And what makes it work in that situation is that she is just so unbelievably flexible and committed to making it work that she, you know, does some crazy days sometimes where she's working first thing in the morning and then has kind of a block off in the middle of the day and then, you know, at night. And that's not sustainable for an everyday type of thing, but if you're going to make an exception on the time zone, you need to make sure that the people who need to make an exception are really comfortable with that and really comfortable with being flexible and have that sort of life situation where that works for them. You've met a lot of people that listen to this podcast in person. You've seen, heard about their businesses and seen them. Let's say we walk into a workshop of yours and the title of the workshop is, you know, the culture that you, you ought to be building in your business. What are some of the big things we ought to be thinking about from day one? What I would encourage people is to think of the structure and habit that sits behind that. So not to think of it as something where like you have to create these fluffy phrases and you have to kind of, you know, do that and then you you put it aside, but actually to think what are the structure and habits that I want to build amongst the team. So one example would be we every Friday we have this little thing called High Five Fridays. So every Friday everyone takes a minute and they, you know, say, you did an awesome job because of this, or you did an awesome job because of that. And it's, it's meant to be recognizing each other for something that they did well. Another would be get to know you Wednesday. So every Wednesday, you know, somebody posts and we rotate it throughout the team. Someone posts a sort of silly, fun question meant to get to know each other. So one last week was put up your favorite childhood photo 
And everyone's like, oh, my God, look <laughs> at this person and do that, you know, and it's just fun. Are the cynical among us going to say, well, who really cares what some so-and-so looked like as a kid? Isn't this just the fun and games we're trying to get away from when we leave the office? Well, I think for people to to really kind of help you grow the business, they need to be able to collaborate well. So I think in a very selfish way, you know, as a business owner, you want people to work well together. You want them to be able to create those synergies directly so that when there's anything that kind of comes up, they feel comfortable going to each other as opposed to always going through you. I think that, you know, just from a morale and retention perspective, if you enjoy where you're working and you feel motivated and, and happy and really, you know, sort of support your team members, you are going to have more engaged people that are working harder, that are enjoying things and kind of sticking around and wanting to help you grow. And those relationships don't happen unless you foster them because you're not sitting together and you're not going for happy hour. You have to actually purposefully create the habits to embed to make sure that they happen over time. So I'm going to ask some philosophical questions at the end of the interview. If you could go back and give yourself business consulting at the moment at which you were starting Greenback Tax Services, what are some of the things that you'd want yourself to know back in 2008? One thing that for me was really hard was that external validation. So I, I came from, you know, this world at Barclays where like people were constantly telling you you were doing a good job, you know, so there were company awards and there were team meetings and, you know, there were promotions and there were bonuses and there were all those things. And when Dave and I started the business, not having some of those sort of pats on the back was, was really sort of disarming. Like I found it just really like it sort of shook my core. So I think one thing I would sort of want to go back and tell myself is just make sure to really understand that, that what you're getting into is you have to be confident in your own choices and what you're doing. And that you're not going to get some of that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that things are going bad. Did you end up getting validation in a different way? Yeah. I mean, it comes from, you know, growing a team and kind of the success in terms of growing the business, but it took years, you know, there were a couple of years where every month you're looking at things and you're thinking like, is this a good thing that we're doing here? And you kind of want someone to be like, yes, that's good. Keep doing that. Or no, stop. That's a really terrible idea. And you have to sort of create that yourself. So that external validation doesn't come until after when you don't really need it anymore. In retrospect, was quitting corporate and starting a, a business, was it risky? Yes and no. So I think there's this feeling that like a corporate job is permanent and something you can count on. And that's just not true. You know, you have much more control of your own destiny when you're running your own business. You're learning skills, you know, that are applicable to many different things, even if that doesn't work out for you running a business. But also you just have, have more control. You have more ability to kind of create what you want and, and manage your life the way you want it. So no, it's not that risky, as long as what you've got is, you know, some sort of financial stability to sit on. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend somebody give up that kind of world of employment and start their own thing unless they've got enough of a cushion to see it through. What did your family and friends make of the decision? They thought we were crazy, completely crazy. Like everyone just kind of thought, okay, within a year, this is like a sabbatical and it's lovely that they're taking some time off with their new son and, you know, that's it. And in a year they'll be back and kind of doing what they're doing. I really just don't think there was any understanding of both from them and from us, to be honest, of what we were trying to do. So, you know, when I, we actually like a few weeks ago found, we were cleaning out old boxes and found this list of what we thought success would be like in five years if we started a business. You know, I can't exactly remember the numbers, but they were like, I don't know, a tenth of, of what we're doing right now. And so we, I think when we pitched it to people, we didn't also probably pitch it all that well because we were probably a little bit afraid to fail. And so, you know, in a way it's easy to say like, oh, no one thought that we could do it. But like, I don't even really know for sure if we did, you know? So I don't know that we were like standing out there and being like, I'm going to go make this right. Or if we were like, just look away for a little while. And if things work out, I'll let you know later, you know? So there was a bit of, of both sides of that, I think, that happened there. Was there a moment when everybody got it and it came together? No, I mean, it was just really doing it for a couple years. I think as the team grew, that definitely kind of helped validate that when it wasn't just Dave and I kind of sitting, you know, and trying to do work with just a few freelancers. And then there were a few early things, like we got a little bit of PR a couple years into the business. And that sort of has this external validation where people, you're able to say like, oh, look, you know, I got quoted by this newspaper or this, and that was kind of big. And for me, one big thing, you know, my dad's an entrepreneur and I always had a lot of respect for him in terms of his business. 
And there was a moment at which I remember having this conversation and explaining the whole thing to him, really sitting down and, and kind of saying like, oh, here's what we're doing and here's the growth. And he was like, oh, he just kind of like it clicked for him that he understood that the concept that we didn't have an office was groundbreaking, not silly, you know, and the fact that we could, you know, we're hiring people all over the place was strategic, not, you know, ill-informed and not that he ever necessarily thought those things, but I do, for me, that was like a big moment of like being able to explain it to him and having him really understand that this was something that, you know, had a tremendous amount of promise and, and really was a new way of doing things as opposed to ignoring kind of standard good principles. Well, thank you for joining us on the TMBA podcast, Carrie. We appreciate it. Thank you. Boss man, I was just mentioning to you before we started this podcast how easy it is to talk to Carrie about business. Part of it is is that she really knows her stuff. You can tell she's practiced at explaining these things on a day-to-day basis with their staff. But part of it, I think, too, is that we've had so many of these conversations in person. She's someone that I would go to above and beyond this podcast to ask for advice. Just not on your website, how to design a good website. <laughs> Oh, rough. Inside jokes. Wow. Here's one interesting thing that emerged. When we talk about the Nathan Barry episode we had a few weeks ago, he was talking about growing his staff of 26. Carrie comes along, talks about her staff of 55. They both cite the number 10 as the moment when culture becomes like a tipping point for culture. In other words, it becomes more critical to start thinking about these things. What do you think about that? With our last company, we ended up with like over 15. Yeah, it was definitely starting to become an issue for sure. It's pretty easy to manage under 10. Once it starts to be over 10, I started to even see like subcultures start to develop within the company. And yeah, if you're not thoughtful, if you're not thinking about, you know, the way in which you want to operate your company and the things that people should be doing and thinking about in the context of your company, it can get messy. And this is something that Jason Cohen talked about at DC Austin, which is just being purposeful about it. Jason Cohen, the founder of WP Engine. Correct. Yeah. And he said, basically, with WP Engine, he started to see trends that were happening there that had happened at previous businesses. And he said, wait a minute, I'm seeing this again. A culture is developing. I'm not in charge of that culture. I need to take control. Big thanks to Carrie for coming on the show today. Hope you all enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, feedback. If you head on over to tropicalmba.com slash greenback tax services, you can check out all the links to everything mentioned in this episode. I think that's it. That's it. That's it. We'll see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.